1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916... Crisis. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Hello history friends, this is the promised collaboration episode that I did with Jordan Harbour from the Twilight Histories podcast. Basically in this, if you enjoy your alternative history, if your appetite was whetted by that little deep dive topic that I did, which if you're a patron for When Diplomacy Fails, you will get all four episodes of rather than just two, but that's another story. Today we are here to tell the story about, well, about four different alternative history deep dives that Jordan Harbour and I go into. Jordan Harbour is a great guy, he's a great podcaster, and if you would like to find out more about him or track down his science fiction, alternative reality projects, then go to TwilightHistories.com. It's all one word, all lowercase, very straightforward. Jordan Harbour, like myself, has been doing this for a very long time and well, we've kind of been running parallel to each other in terms of podcasting and really how long we've been doing this for. We've both learned a lot during our times in podcasting and well, we've both grown a lot as well, as, as you'll discover, so yeah, it was great to have him on, because it kind of, uh, during the course of this five-year project, I've kind of brought on a lot of people who've, well, been with me not necessarily since the beginning, but certainly for a good long time, and there's a few more of them to come, so hope you'll stick with us. As well as some surprises, there's also some classical history podcasters, which you'll all enjoy. Today, though, as we know, it's Jordan Harbour's turn, and he ranks among those classical history podcasters. He deserves your attention. He's a very talented guy. So if you're ready, history friends, let's go to some strange and mysterious worlds. Helped, if you're brave enough, by yours truly, and Jordan Harbour. Enjoy, guys. Okay, guys, back on the podcast, and today we have a very special guest, because, even though it's a collaboration episode with a rather significant podcaster... This podcaster is not coming in to talk about an episode in the 19 previous episodes per se. He's coming in instead to talk about alternative history, science fiction, world building. Ladies and gentlemen, history friends, today we have Jordan Harbour from the Twilight Histories podcast. How are you doing, Jordan?
0: So great to be a part of your show today.
1: Ah, you're very welcome. You're very, very welcome. I'm very excited. This is going to be a very interesting podcast talk about what ifs and what might have been. And I think those kinds of discussions will always draw people in. They're always... So, like, people w- will speculate for hours on end about what might have been. So we've got a good good amount of content that we can tackle. So where would you like to start?
0: Well, I was thinking just to sort of get our feet wet, maybe we could just talk about kind of how to approach alternate history. Because sure. I think sort of the, the general way people approach it is they they're kind of unidirectional, or, you know, they'll, they'll say... This is how it had to have happened. If 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 something else, if there was a point of divergence, and and then it goes off in another direction, and how I kind of look at it is, there's there's a, a an unlimited number of of different directions that it can go into. So it's you know as as soon as you press the button, change the world, everything changes. So I mean, right down to you know what sperm goes to the egg, like the entire next generation is different. So that, that's kind of how I like to start it, is it's a completely blank slate. You know, if you change something in in 1700, Napoleon isn't born. You know, you know mm-hmm. there is no George Washington that becomes a, a mobster or something. You know, like it, that whole generation is just not there. And right. so we, we start from scratch. Okay. So th- that's sort of the, the main rule of how, of how I start to world build. And then uh, after that, because... I'm a science fiction writer. I write alternate history and, and sort of uh, locked in that sort of genre of science fiction. I, I like to make a world fascinating. I like to make mm. it exotic. I like to make it, you know, it, I, I don't want it to be just slightly different so that someone might, you know, read the story and, and maybe, you know, the French Revolution happens, you know, 10 years this way or 10 years that way. Like, sure, that's not yeah. very exotic. Like, it's got to be like, really <laughs> exotic, you know yeah, something that people yeah. are like, whoa, that's mm. different. So that's kind of that, that's sort of the general framework where uh, I start to build a new world, but I understand okay. you've got a a number of worlds that are a number of points of divergence that uh, you want to talk about and and I think we can create some great worlds out of those, so we can just sort of chat those through
1: yeah, absolutely actually do you know what i've i've been I've realized that I I tend to forget my, my, I have a very loose structure as it is, but I tend to forget my my rough structure is say hello and then introduce the podcaster, which I realize I just forgot to do. So before we get into the actual (laughs) content, maybe I should just ask Uh you to describe Twilight History's podcast and and what it's all about.
0: My little preamble there, you kind of get an idea of what I do. I I do science fiction. My show is, um, each show is about an hour long and it's it's sort of soundscaped it's got music and sound effects and i take you to a different world and each world is completely different from the world that you had explored the time before you know it has new characters and you know these are short stories essentially that are are kind of dramatized and you know they're exciting to make and they're exciting to listen to i hope and (laughs) and you know it's it's just a it's a joy in my life
1: Mm, yeah well i must say you're very good at it and even judging from the episodes themselves not necessarily the time it takes in between them to make it's clear that a lot <laughs> of, a lot of hard work goes into each episode how how long roughly does it take you to make each one
0: uh, for years i i've thought to actually write down the, the amount of hours that goes into it. But it's just so hard because, I mean, uh, I'll walk the dog or I'll walk to work and I'll be thinking about it and, and sort of be lost in it. Or I'll have a shower and I'll, I'll be thinking about new characters or, 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 or mm. d- different elements of the world. So how do you sort of log all this time stitched together? It's just, this constant sort of thing that, you know, when I, when I start a new world and start a new story, you know, it, it, it just, it, it takes over. And so it's, it's hard to say. I, I do have three kids now. I didn't have three kids when I first started this podcast uh, wow. a number of years ago. So um, I'm in a completely different phase in my life. So the shows that I put out don't come out very often. But I do have a membership area, and I, I have to sort of keep them fed. So I, oh, I produce a show nice. for them once a month. Cool. And right, right now I'm working on a Twilight Histories book. Uh, but we can get into that uh, you know at the end, you know oh, to... uh,
1: by all means we'll have plenty of opp- plenty of opportunities <laughs> to plug, don't you worry <laughs> yeah <Cool. laughs>
0: yeah i I really want to get into the the meat of this though i'm I'm so excited to to go sure. through some of these worlds that you jumped cool, cool. up
1: well, I think the first one I want to start with the first one that that i that I alluded to and then mentioned to you. it goes back to the episode eight, which was the American Revolution and or american war of independence whatever you want to call it and now it's in 1774 is the date the continental congress is trying to vote on what alternatives the 13 colonies should pursue and now it it should be borne in mind that only 12 of the 13 states are attending georgia doesn't attend because georgia is still at least on, on the surface at least loyal to the crown so it doesn't want to take part in this continental congress treasonous activity but the the 12 States that do send representatives, they vote on the alternatives. And one of these alternatives posed was the idea of a dual monarchy with Britain, whereby the British and the Americans would essentially, now the Americans wouldn't elect a a king of their own, but they would have a, a parliament of their own, which would have a kind of representative, a Lord Lieutenant, if you like, that would then report back to the... the the British king and it's it's a similar model although it certainly would have worked differently to the Irish I the the idea this was posed in Ireland in the 1900 throughout the early 1800s and 1900s as well just to try and find a solution to the Irish question it was called because the Irish were so rebellious but you couldn't trust them to have them by themselves so Mm -hmm. maybe some kind of limited self-rule would be the best option so it seems like, even though the, the American colonies weren't necessarily super rebellious at this point, the thing that really got me, the thing that really drew me in about this whole scenario was the fact that this whole idea of dual monarchy, which was so fundamentally different to what America became, mm-hmm. that whole idea, it was defeated in the Continental Congress by one vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and to me, that was... I just can't believe no one, no one's really talked much about it. I remember I saw one alternative history about it was what if America was called the idea Mm -hmm. of Britain and America being welded together in modern times, I think is a a fascinating one, don't you think?
0: Oh, yeah, I I think this is a it's a fascinating premise to start on. And and you look at it and one of the things is that there's a lot of uh, Americans or, you know, colonials at this time that really didn't want to leave Britain. You know, Mm. this this is high treason. You know, it's it's a lot. It's a very painful experience to commit treason you know this is this is something like you've been brought up with viewing the monarchy you know inherently a, a part of your self-identity you've pledged allegiance to the monarchy and then to uh, you know commit treason against that that's a very painful process so i'm there, there are many people that didn't want to do it and many that came up to canada uh, during the revolution i think what britain was trying to do throughout these very troubled years was to try and find a compromise during a time when um, there was a, just this growing sort of emotion of of uh, distrust and hatred you know they'd just gone through uh, what what was it called the, the the indian wars or the
1: also known as the seven years war in the, the seven era. Years, yeah, yeah yeah
0: so so i mean this was like the first world the first world war you know mm. before a lot of these people, they had fought on the side of Britain, and they uh, identified themselves as Britons. And so, um, and, but when they came back, they discovered that Britain was starting to tax them more and, and pull away their rights. And then the the colonials were starting to throw eggs at the at the soldiers who had just uh, you know fought for for them, presumably. <laughs> yeah. And and so there was all this conflict going on. It would it would be really interesting to see if Britain. Was able to find a, a negotiated peace through this, and it is plausible. I mean, Canada's was kind of like that. But then the question is, for for the purposes of um, of your your world building, is what are the conflicts? Does that solve the conflicts, or does it just you know press them down and, and extend them out to a later date? So then you're you're dealing with. You know, a a revolutionary war that's on completely different terms. You know, in a completely different generation. So maybe it's like two or three generations later. It's a, it's in the deep eighteen hundreds. So, and that that would be a a fascinating world to to set it in, wouldn't it?
1: Mm, like the American Revolution, the it's not just the surface results, which is is important to remember. The actual things that the that the that the American War for Independence inspired. Just like the the French Revolution, for example. Without arguably now, you could make a case that without the American War for Independence, France would never have been so bankrupted because the French had supported the Americans monetarily and militarily. And it, it essentially bankrupted France, with the result yeah. that it was really unable to defend its own regime by the time the French Revolution rolled around. But also, of course, the actual people of France, they were inspired by the ideals and 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 values and principles like liberty, equality, fraternity, like th- mm-hmm. those things, they 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 come together. But they they're certainly recognisable in America bef- beforehand. Like this idea that the rights are being taken away was, I mean, the French had been ruled for years by an absolutist monarch, and it's only once the mm-hmm. the Americans start saying we're si- we're sick of a, a faceless monarch here that the French start to say, yeah, we're kind of sick of ours as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah yeah and what also you, what happens here is that you have a uh, a balance of power in europe that is you know is is just dominated by britain and there's there's no end to it you know i mean france is just screwed yeah right? like what like there's there's no way to to recoup if you have america as a vassal of, of great britain mm-hmm. um, you know for centuries if it stays that way
1: Sure. But, yeah. but
0: you know, maybe it doesn't, maybe maybe these ideas still format and, and and erupt later.
1: When we look at an example like the American War for Independence, this very specific kind of event in history that leads to a very obvious result in the independence of the thirteen colonies and then America. Mm-hmm. I mean, where should we start if we're gonna world build? Should we Yeah Oh I mean like even look at the fact like would a non independent thirteen colonies would they have been as eager to expand? I mean would they have had manifest destiny and would they want it to have spread to right. the west I mean would that still have been an issue? Do you think do you think that it's it's fair to say that other powers i mean might have might have jumped in there I mean the Russians had Alaska until. 1869
0: so well yeah well, well there, there you go and you would have had you know the spanish colonies which had you know had their own revolutions and and I, i'm not sure if britain would have had open immigration to you know say eastern europe in in the 1800s as they did you know it would have been mostly confined to the east coast and the uh, and the, the center and the and uh the, the west would have been largely spanish
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it also it's it's worth bearing in mind what Britain could have done with these 13 colonies, basically, like reinforcing its power, you could say, I mean, the with the power of the 13 colonies and knowing how much America grew in population over the coming years, and how much of a power it became in its own right, even before like the 20th century, it Mm -hmm. was considerably powerful in America, like on the continent, especially once it defeated Mexico. So by then i mean could a case be made for britain becoming kind of a superpower like even before like the the later industrial revolution and its its indian empire and all that kind of thing could a case be made for Britain just becoming unstoppable on the world stage.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, once we roll the die, you know, we can do whatever we want. (laughs) We can make that that world um, suit our needs because you can always sort of say, well, you know, you know, according to this particular you know strain of history, we say that the optimal things always happen in, in order to make that happen, and I think that could be a very fascinating world when do you want to set it is a question of when is the most fascinating time to set it and that would probably be when purposes of a story sure. it's when the conflicts are at their ripest so mm. and and the question is what kind of conflicts are we dealing with are we dealing with internal conflicts like between the state and the people is it a class warfare thing is it a is it a religious issue between you know, protestant and anglican or are we dealing with a an external threat you know maybe there's war brewing you know maybe spain is spain and and france uh team up and and now we have the a war between louisiana and teaming up with with the spanish colonies against against the, these british colonies and and you could set it in you know the deep south mm. with this kind of war going on i mean you can you can do that and, and it would be really fascinating
1: sure yeah there's also if you if you want to put it another way spain lost its uh american colonies it lost america mexico and and everything essentially in south america while it was basically fighting for its survival against napoleon and we already mentioned mm-hmm. without the american revolution arguably there might not have been a french revolution So you could follow that train of logic into thinking, well, without the French Revolution, there would be no invasion of Spain. Therefore, there would be no Spanish losing of its colonies, which would mean really that imperialism and colonialism in the old style, like laying claim to vast swathes of of continents as Spain had done and as other countries had done, like that that could continue far on into the future.
0: And, you know, sometimes what I like to do is sort of take conflicts and sort of pile them up on top of each other until you you create some weird thing that happens where the the conflicts sort of weave themselves together so for instance you have this idea of enlightenment and uh, and freedom and a, a republic uh, which was suppressed in the 1700s and maybe mm. it it's still sort of under the surface as kind of this revolutionary current that's spreading uh sort of like communism did in the 1800s and into the uh early 20th century you have this backdrop of the enlightenment sort of brewing you have the the colonies of the of S- france spain and and britain fighting a, a hot war mm. and then you could have something like a christmas truce between them uh, between sort of the republican sides on both sides right where you know the these sort of radical republican limita- libertarian types are sort of come together and then say no we're not going to fight each other you okay. know it, it would be a good you know backdrop for a story
1: yeah absolutely in, in line with that in line with with how impactful ideologically the french revolution was for european thought i mean it led then to the it arguably led to the 1848 revolutions uh, which were hugely impactful and kind of tore the old world asunder. Also led the way, of course. I mean, without no Napoleon, there is no Napoleon the Third, and without no <laughs> Napoleon the Third, arguably there is no Franco-Prussian War. Which I mean, this is this is the danger of connecting all these events that, seen seen by themselves, aren't. I mean, you could say they're not connected, but when. When you look at the train of history going into the past and how important certain figures are, if you take those figures out, I mean it's the great man of history idea that mm-hmm. I've talked about with other with other podcasters and every now and then you come across examples that make you think wow, you know, if that if that person wasn't there, everything would have been different.
0: Right, right. And you bring up a good point about the great man because, you know, alternate historical thought experiments do. Often is they remove the great men. And then they're just playing by economics in their alternate history version. And kind of what I like to do as a, as a, you know, a science fiction guy or fiction guy is I like to put new great men in. Mm. You know, great men that didn't exist. But you, uh, you yeah. create, you know, you have this scenario where you have this sort of place where there's an opportunity. The power and The great man is able to move in and take advantage of that opportunity, and he yeah. has a name that you've never heard before yeah. but he, you know, but he he comes and he takes it, and there's something really quite fun and fascinating about that
1: well there is but it, it, the thing the problem or well maybe not necessarily the problem, but the issue with that is that I mean you could take something like that anywhere you could you, you must be grateful like. Inventing people to kind of put into these power vacuums, really, and, and mm-hmm. send them send them towards these these storms of uh, of interlocking yeah. events, and, and see what happens, kind of thing. I suppose it is a robot. yeah.
0: There's your character, or or maybe that's a character that's sort of talked about, and and you're you know the, your main characters are like soldiers that are experiencing the war, and and the great man is sort of the person that they always refer to, and you, but you never actually see it. This person in, in the uh, in this story, right? So yeah. Yeah, I mean there's there's great men in history even when it's alternate history. <laughs> so what's your next one?
1: Cool. Okay. So So changing the changing the tempo a little bit even even 5 years ago when when I did the episode on the Great Northern War where basically you saw the power of the Swedish empire being eclipsed by Peter the Great's Russia in a huge kind of passing of the torch which obviously, I mean, the rise of Russia affected so much in everything from Napoleon to the First World War. I mean, take the Russian bear out of that equation, everything changes. And the reason why I say take the Russian bear out of the equation is because in 1709, when Charles XII of Sweden, he lost the Battle of Poltava, which basically shattered Sweden's ability to resist its enemies. After eight plus years of fighting on all fronts and defeating all comers it's almost unfair Charles Twelfth of Sweden invades Russia one of the first recorded like invasions of its size and falls victim to the to the Russian winter that would later claim so many and we see early examples of scorched earth and everything and essentially he loses the battle of Poltava and he retreats into Ottoman territory he basically seeks asylum there and he recommends to the Ottomans that they declare war on the Russians which they do They invade Russia, and they send an army 200,000 strong against Peter the Great's not-so-great force of about about thirty or 40,000. And they destroy Peter the Great's army Hmm. against against the River Pruth in, in the Battle of Pruth. And after they do this, and after Peter is left running for his life, essentially, the Ottomans sue for peace because they feel like they've proved their point. (laughs) <laughs> but Charles Twelfth is like no, press the attack, destroy him he's my enemy, he's our enemy kind of thing suddenly Protestant Sweden wants to cozy up to, to Muslim Ottoman Empire like it's, uh-huh. it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend but as far as the Ottomans were concerned they didn't need to destroy the Russians, the Russians weren't a threat to them, they just needed to give them a bloody nose and send them on their way but what if that morning the man who Charles the Twelfth had to persuade had just been in a more lenient mood and had decided, yeah okay, we'll just we'll just wipe them off the map. we might as well we can let's just do it." so they invade and they press the attack mm-hmm. and they send a force yeah. in, and Peter is killed in one of these battles, say, and his power base disintegrates, and Russia disintegrates itself, and mm-hmm. with this. Charles Twelfth, with Ottoman auxiliaries is able to take the fight back to his enemies, mainly in Poland. And once he did, de- well, Russia was the main boogeyman. So once Russia was defeated, he was able to move back into Poland to defeat the Poles, force the Poles to sue for peace. And then once that's done, the only enemy left is the Danes. And then the Danes are defeated because at this stage, the Danes seem to get defeated a fair bit by the Swedes. So that's, that's another assumption, but, but there you go. So then, mm-hmm. Charles the Twelfth—he never dies, as as what does happen when he's besieging the the fortress of Frederick's Road in, I think it's Norway or something. Yeah, he's shot in the head and killed instantly. Not a very glamorous way for a Swedish king <laughs> to go. It wasn't the first time that a Swedish king had died in battle, and because he lives, he main, basically he maintains the Swedish Empire for better or worse. And the Russian Empire, if not ceases to exist, is certainly stunted by the loss of its. Vibrant leader Peter the Great and its basic uh, assassination or, or annihilation under under the Ottoman invasion. I mean, how do you think mm-hmm. that that how do you think that that removal of Russia or the empowering of Sweden would have affected? Well, I suppose even the next few years.
0: Well, I, I mean, this is this is a fascinating potential for, for a world building. I mean, it's real fertile ground because you have a radically different culture. Overtaking of uh, a culture. So, the, I mean, if if the if the Ottomans take over Moscow, you know, now you have mosques in Moscow. I mean, that's a that's a fascinating. Uh, and and you know, the the symbol of of the Ottoman Empire is you know is the crescent moon. I mean, the symbol of, of Islam is the crescent moon, which yeah. was the moon that was over Constantinople when when the Turks conquered it. Mm. And so the, so that was the the end of of that. Particular you know, of that Christian sort of empire, the, the Byzantines, the Romans. And now here we have, you know, the other arm, you know, yeah. the Eastern Orthodox. This is like round two of that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's at that scale. So, mm. I mean, we can talk about like this, the, the Swedes, you know, keep their their little territory. But I think the, the real story is uh, the conquest of Moscow by the, the Ottoman Turks. It just opens up a world because now the Ottomans can go east, they can go west, can go to europe they can go to asia they can do what peter the great did in terms of expanding their empire yeah you know it's a huge block of power but also i think it's it has the potential just like the mongols of overextension mm. you know the, the ottomans were already huge i mean yeah. they were i think bigger than the roman empire at its height if you take all of their square miles put together so if you add russia into that i mean that's just a mm. that that creates a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. It does. And yeah. so there's, there's, a, there's an opportunity for the whole thing to fall apart a lot sooner. Mm. But then falling apart into what? Falling apart into, you know, Muslim kingdoms. Yeah. you know, And and I think where you could create some fun fodder for alternate history, for, for sort of storytelling is, uh, let's say that you had a great man who was a, a Shiite who sort of took over the Russian area. And you know the, the the Ottomans were Sunnis, so now you have a Sunni Shiite you know conflict between the Russians and the and the Turks, you know yeah. something like that would sort of parallel what's going on now in the world, and so it, it sort of you know science fiction sort of tries to take what's going on in the world now and projecting it into a, an imaginary world, and then you get to sort of play things out on a different sort of palette. There's some interesting things you can do with that.
1: Mm, oh, absolutely, and I think. What you said there about the Ottoman overextension is interesting because even if the Ottomans don't basically resurrect themselves, I mean, the last siege of Vienna in 1683, when that that failed, historians tend to see from about the 1700s onwards, the Ottoman decline as kind of ongoing up to the point of the First World War. So even Mm -hmm. if the Ottomans didn't get like a shot in the arm from from expanding into or at least soundly militarily defeating the Russians, you have to ask yourself what Europe would have looked like if there was no Eastern boogeyman over mm. uh, over in the East, especially for the likes of Poland. And the, like, the Poles would suffer horrendously w- with the Russians there, really. They would lose gradually lose more and more of their independence to the Russians up to the point in the 1730s when they basically became a Russian vassal and then they mm-hmm. were partitioned in the 1790s and Poland really ceased to exist. I mean, without the Russians there, or at least with the Russians significantly stunted in this defeat and catastrophic experience, arguably the Poles would have taken advantage and they would have taken advantage of the fact that the Russians weren't there to stop them and maybe mm-hmm. they would have forged ahead. They could have they could have become the next bulwark to the Turks.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's not an unrealistic thing that the, the Turks could have... You know, collapsed at that point because why didn't why did they choose not to go into russia you know, they probably had good reason to to choose not to i mean you don't give up on an opportunity one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care like destroying the army of Peter the Great uh, mm-hmm. without good reason. So mm-hmm. yeah, they gave, they gave up on the opportunity. Had they gone through, they pro- I mean, in, in our uh, particular vein, they probably would have collapsed or, or broken up into fiefdoms. And then Poland would have had a, a great opportunity, Poland and Sweden. I mean, it really would have been an opportunity for Central uh, Europe to, uh, to really strike out on its own.
1: Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah. And I think a, a world in which Poland... Is saved the, the experience as it goes through. It can only be a good thing considering how badly it suffered.
0: I mean, you may even want to set your story in Poland. Yeah. You know, a, a resurgent Poland.
1: Mm, yeah. You know,
0: expanding into the Ottoman Turkish Russia.
1: <laughs> mm. And a lot of the reason why this is getting into a, a bit of the... I've always found Polish history so fascinating, but a lot of the reason why Poland was declining at this stage was because the Russian influence was seen as so kind of overbearing within a, a generation. Much of the Polish nobility is kind of, for the sake of self-interest, they given away a lot of their independence to mm-hmm. the Russians because they saw greater opportunities for empowering themselves and enriching themselves in Russia. And mm-hmm. without Russia being there, they would have invested those resources, I mean, we'd like to presume they would, in Poland itself, in their home country. Yeah. So Make that could, Poland great again. Yes. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> yeah, sure and- and with all
0: those little German states, you know, mm. all disunited around them, I mean, they would have had, that was a huge buffer between them and France. They could have expanded if they wanted into Central Europe more, into Germany and into Russia. They, I would imagine that they would choose Russia but, because it was sort of to be taken, you know, with, especially if the Ottomans were collapsing. And, you know, that was a, it was a territory where they had a lot of kinship to.
1: It is. Because of the threat that Russia would later pose to the Ottoman Empire and the the Eastern question in British foreign policy, which was basically this idea that the Ottomans would be overtaken by the Russians, that the Russians would swoop down and seize Constantinople and block off the Straits to international trade, <laughs> and then they'd expand mm-hmm. into the Mediterranean, and incredible stuff, and obviously a massive overestimation of Russian mm-hmm. capabilities, but the idea that the Russians are stopped in their infancy in terms mm-hmm. of empire before this is even brought about i've always that's that's why i think this stood out to me because it's such a massive reversal to what actually would well not necessarily happen but what people around the 18 and 1900s early 1900s believed was on on the way
0: yeah and of course that completely knocks out the you know the great bear so uh, whatever wars there are in europe from now on you don't have to have the the visage of this giant bear coming down, <laughs> you know, Britain, you know, up forming an alliance with the bear and the bear coming in. Uh, yeah, unless it's yeah. Poland now, I don't know.
1: Because <laughs> I feel like Poland is like the the kind of Commonwealth or Empire, if you like that. That would have made mm-hmm. maybe not made European history better, but uh, certainly I feel like the Polish experience and it getting cut up into little pieces by all its its neighbors was just a terrible part of history and a really tragic one for. And maybe it's because I have so many Polish friends, it's kind of coming out in me. But I think certainly they would like the idea where Russia is stopped before it gets a chance to, to do what it later does. With the so many directions you can go. I mean, this is before even talking about the Swedish element, but... I suppose a, a Europe in which in which the Swedish Empire still exists. The the Swedish Empire it fits neatly into the historical narrative as an empire which rose with Gustavus Adolphus in the 1630s and then was kind of snuffed out with the death of Charles the Twelfth in the late 1710s. I don't remember the exact date when Charles the Twelfth was killed, but it's almost a hundred years. Like historians salivate when they see a a nice mm-hmm. little a nice little period of history. And yeah. that they can fit everything into. I mean, this that that takes away from the fact that Sweden was still active in international affairs right up to the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, Bonaparte's even had. I think one of their generals became a king of Sweden. So it wasn't the case that Sweden just disappeared. But yeah, the martial idea, the kind of the values that the Swedes held and their experience of having to maintain a standing army was very similar to what Prussia would later do. And what I would what I would wonder is. Does the maintenance of the Swedish Empire prevent the rise of Prussia, or can the two coexist somehow?
0: Because it never really flourished in the way that it could have. Yeah, uh, there's for this you know cultural development that that would have happened with it being a sort of free state with its own um, sovereignty and 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 power and and influence. Sure. And even though it's it was kind of stuck way up in the north, and it it wasn't like a central power. You know, it really would sort of that that central pole of power, north, more mm-hmm. pull the the weight of the of diplomacy further north. And so Big there's turn. some interesting implications there, and it would be interesting to. I, I love setting stories in, in places that that are are just completely different. You know, not always in Germany, not always in like Paris or 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 Berlin or you know or London, but in like somewhere in Sweden would be would be a fascinating place to to explore.
1: Big time, yeah. A, what Berlin later tried to do when when the Prussians tried to recast Berlin as a kind of, well, mostly under Frederick the Great from about 1740 to, to the 80s. They tried to present Berlin as the capital of European culture and, and everything else and tried to, like, ignore Paris over there that already had that claim <laughs> kind of thing. Right. But right. would Stockholm have tried to do that? And maybe they would have tried to, to reinvent themselves culturally, like you said, or maybe... In terms of Navy, maybe they would have tried to pursue new Sweden. I mean, Sweden did have a few colonies in the New World. Maybe they would have succeeded had the Mm -hmm. Swedes not been so ruined here. But yeah, I mean, I think this actually leads us into into the scenario we have here, which is, what if Tsar Alexander II was never assassinated? This is only our first of two assassination questions. So this one here, what what if Tsar Alexander II was never assassinated in 1881? And most people have not heard of Tsar Alexander, but he was actually a very important character in not just Russian foreign affairs, because he, he was there during the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, which I've I've covered as, as part of my Britain Goes to War series. But Tsar Alexander II was actually more important behind the scenes, because he set a lot of reforms in place, and had he not been assassinated, Russian history and Russian society may have progressed very differently, because as soon as he was killed his successor, Alexander III, I mean, uh, to, to put it in context, okay, Alexander II is actually nicknamed Alexander the Liberator. And that's mainly because of the the reforms he brought in. But once once he was killed, his son, Alexander III, basically, as a kind of uh, a middle finger to, to the people that had killed him, he rolled back all the reforms. He made Russia even more autocratic. He got rid of the the ideas for kind of representation and, and increased legislation and a, a curbing of like m- making Russia more federal in a sense. He basically turned back the clock in Russia even further at a time when they could least afford it. That process kept going then. Really the, the rolling back of reforms and the furthering of the autocracy of Russia was carried on to Alexander III's son, who you would have heard because he was Nicholas II. And now, I'm I'm not going to say that that had Nicholas II been the son of a son who had who had not seen his father be assassinated I'm not going to say if if that had happened would would Alexander's would Alexander III and would Nicholas II have faced such trouble like domestically would Tsar Nicholas II have faced the Russian revolution or even the 1905 revolution because surely if you further on this logic I mean the the logical end of Alexander the II's reforms, the way, the direction he was going in, was constitutional monarchy, because that's the next step, really. Yeah. He had gone so far by that stage, and he had appeased so many people by giving them what they wanted and bringing an end to a lot of the real awful internal problems that had plagued Russia, like inequality and just the, the corruption of the nobility and... The, the massive gap between rich right. and poor.
0: So he was really, a, I mean, he, he was kind of keeping in keeping with Peter the great, the modernizer. Yes. And he was in the same sort of spirit. You know, I, I kind of liken uh, Vladimir Putin to, to Peter the great. He has a, Giant picture of Peter the Great over his office, his desk. You know, he he likens himself to Peter the Great. So I kind he? of think of like, <laughs> imagine Vladimir Putin was succeeded by another Vladimir Putin. Like, mm. like you get two of them in a row. Like, Putin is really, you know, say what you want about Putin, whether he's good or bad, but he's really taken Russia and and lifted it up and modernized it um, to the best ability that he can. I mean, he's made it into a an energy superpower. But imagine, like. I guess America's hope is that – or the Allies' hope is that it's a – you know, you're going to get rid of Putin and then you get someone, you know, a little bit apathetic that goes in next. Mm-hmm. But what if, you know, you get someone that continues on the the tradition of modernizing and just like just pounding the, the improvements? And, and, and so that's sort of what you get with this guy Alexander. Yeah. Uh, so you get a – you know, just it, – it makes the system more efficient. It makes it um, the, the labor force more efficient. It allows for industrialization and you have that industrialization and modernization, education, art, it all sort of rises up a lot sooner and a lot faster. And so you don't get, you know, communism forming within a a population that's fairly well satisfied and that owns, you know, a, a good plot of land and that has hope for the future. Yeah. I have a quote here. If, if you'll let me read it, it's oh, cool. um, it, it's by Mark Twain, and he was describing Berlin in 1891. And this is sort of, it just made me think of this quote. So, um, he he describes Berlin this way. He says, "Gas and the electric light are employed with a wasteful liberty, and so wherever one goes, he has always double ranks of brilliant lights stretching far down into the night on every hand." And here and there, a wide and splendid constellation of them spread out over the intervening plazas, And between the intermittent double procession of street lamps, one has the swarming and darting cab lamps, a lively, pretty addition to the fine spectacle, for they counterfeit the rush and the confusion and the sparkle of an invasion of fireflies. And that sort of makes me think of, of like what Moscow could have been. <laughs> uh, in the eighteen nineties, or, or you know the the nineteen hundreds, had uh, this guy had, you know modernized them and, and allowed you know cars to to come into being and and street lamps and, yeah. and industry. So that's sort of my take on it. Hmm.
1: Oh, big time! Yeah, I mean, as as is my want, I tend to ignore the more important things like what the people actually went through when I look at the the grand story of of, of foreign affairs. But you're dead right there. I mean, with a Russian populace that was more satisfied with their lot in life, the logical man would say that the Russian experience would only improve and Russia would become more powerful and more intelligent and more technologically advanced and would invest itself in industrialism. And there wouldn't be any need for Stalin's five-year plans because Russia would be on par with, with, with the likes of Germany. By the time of the first world war and who's to say there would even have been a first world war if things had gone differently and if alexander ii's successors were not so turned off by his reforms because he hadn't been killed so they didn't see a need to reverse everything he'd done and and try and increase their own security maybe they maybe the the Russian czars came to be seen as enlightened despots because... Well, you get, a, you get
0: a ruler like, uh, you know, Nicholas II, who is really, you know, apathetic. Yeah. He wasn't a good ruler. But, you know, if, you ha- if the ball has been rolling for over 100 years, and you know, or, or hundreds of years, I, guess, I can't remember when Peter the Great was around, but, um, you know, if, if the, the ball was in motion... And if he's sort of a constitutional despot or or, or or czar, then there's not really much that he can do. He, he could be like you know a, a Charles the First of of uh, Britain, you know, just not not particularly fantastic. You know, kind of, kind of a nice guy, sort of dawdling around with his dominoes. But uh, you know, he, the the ball is ro- is rolling for Russia. You know, it's going. Things are moving. It's industrialized yeah. and it's strong.
1: Yeah, and I think the idea as well. What this all leads to, really, and why it caught my eye. Well, number one, it's very rarely talked about. That it's normally only mentioned in a passing sentence. Oh, Tsar Alexander II was killed by anarchists. At the end, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And his son succeeded him. But to me, to me, that was always it was always a very interesting story because the the fact that Tsar Alexander II was killed at all was, was significant. Because of course, then the, the Tsars were were fearful for exposing themselves to the to the dirty, unwashed masses. And without that happening, he could have ruled for a few more years. He was getting on in years by then, but say his son succeeded him and everything was going fine and he continued the reforms and Nicholas II did as well. And then there was no real need for the Russian Revolution. So there was no Russian dropout of the First World War aside from that whole debate, but there was no communism itself. Yeah. There was no USSR. Like how different everything would have been had that not occurred. I mean... Like the, you could literally go on for for hours. No, no communists, no, no. Cold War, no Stalin. <laughs>
0: well, you know, and, and what I find fascinating is that some of these assassins, they they come at it with sort of this principle and they end up, you know, by assassinating the person that sort of could be their greatest champion. They end up getting the exact opposite. And yeah. I think that kind of leads nicely into your next one.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that. Oh, someone's <laughs> been doing their research. Whoa. Nicely done. <laughs> yeah, very good. I think that you you hit the nail on the head there because, of course, the next one is the arguably one of the biggest what-ifs in history. It's, of course, the question, what if Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke of Austria, was never assassinated on the 28th of June, 1914? I like that. It's probably one of the most asked what-ifs so the obvious the obvious question: If he had survived, could the First World War still have erupted? But but even then, what what you just said there—the fact that he was killed by Gavrilo Princip, and the fact that Gavrilo Princip felt the need to shoot him—this this man, Franz Ferdinand, who it really represented everything that Gavrilo Princip was against, because he was a Bosnian Serb, and the Habsburg monarchy was encroaching on on Serbia and all that kind of thing. But the fact of the matter was, as historians have later pointed out, Franz Ferdinand was planning this grand remodeling, like say what you will about his character. He was fundamentally disliked by many people higher up in the Austro-Hungarian state, but he had plans to modernize the Habsburg monarchy. And this included turning it into a United States of Greater Austria, which would basically have made it a a federal, still, still absolute monarchy, but certainly a federal one with a lot more control in each block, like in each region. And this really mm-hmm. would have alleviated much of the the problems because Fran- in Franz Ferdinand's mind, the last thing that his country should do would be to go to war with Serbia because the last thing it needed was a war. Mm-hmm. And the ironic thing is that by killing the man who was planning to make everything better. Gavrilo Princip basically doomed his own country, certainly, and the rest of Europe, many would argue, to, well, not just the First World War, but the 20th century and everything awful that that century entailed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and when we're looking at alternate histories of the First World War and, and the assassination, I kind of like to go back to what Bismarck said. You know, he, he created that, that union of... of very complex alliances mm-hmm. uh, in in Europe, and he said, and you probably know the quote. I, I can't oh, yeah. remember the quote, but I remember that he said that if there is a war going to break out, it's it's going to break out in that kind of Serbia uh, mm. Balkans area. If you remove that as a problem, then does war break out? Mm. And I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure because I mean you do have Wilhelm II, who is a bit of a a warmonger, he, he he liked the idea of war, mm. but would would the stimulant be there to actually carry it out? That's I mean, they needed the some kind of bullet, a little yeah. bullet to, to start it. That's,
1: that's so, very true, yeah. I mean, when people look at this, they often see it going, I mean, it's obvious one or two ways, either the war still happened, but a little later on, and from a different reason, people say, oh, Europe was just dying to go to war, and the assassination just gave them the excuse. And for a long time that made sense to me because it just seemed like the First World War was inevitable and that the things that happened beforehand led up to it. But the more I've looked into it, and with the July Crisis project that I did in in for to go inside with the centenary, it what just occurred to me was how many people, if they'd acted even in a slightly different way, that everything could have changed. Even with the assassination once that had taken place the austrians were outraged for a good while and then the rest of europe forgot about it and no no one really did or said anything and now there was a, a group of people in austria trying to trying to keep it going but then even even up to the time when austria declared war and people were wondering what they should do and countries were mobilizing and nothing was really set in stone and nothing seemed clear if any man had acted differently at that stage for whatever reason had he got up in a different mood, it was an expression I like. Had he got up on a different side of the bed that morning, these men that control the destinies of of, of so many peoples, so many things could have changed. So mm-hmm. that rant rant about that aside, what I what I often find more more convincing is the idea that no, Europe was not aching to go to war the very alliance system that they were all involved in was designed to maintain peace. There was lots yeah. of swaggering and saber-rattling and foreign competition going around. But if you actually look at the individual countries involved, each one of them had large reasons for not wanting to go to war. And people often talk about the, the idea of, oh, oh the German uh, Germany wanted a preemptive war to get rid of France and, and Russia. First of all, the problem with that is that Germany as a whole did not want that. The 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 size of the party in Germany that argued for that was the same size as the party in France that argued for a revengeist war against Germany to take back Alsace-Lorraine. Very small, fringe groups of people who, who argued for this straightforward solution that would solve everything. I mean, the smart man knows that that's a terrible idea. It doesn't make sense, and I I know that it doesn't make sense because... Arguing that that Germany would would launch like Bismarck himself once said, "Preemptive war is is like committing suicide from fear of death. Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're jumping over the bridge because you're you're afraid that one day you might die." It, and that that really shows it that the Germans were operating through this entire period from a position of distinct weakness. And in mm-hmm. every way that they operated, they acted aggressively and talked belligerently because they believed that they'd already lost the arms race. They lost the naval race to Britain by 1912, which many people Mm -hmm, forget mm -hmm. about. Yeah, they gave up. They did. They gave up. And there was actually a notable detente between Britain and Germany to the extent that in early June before the assassination took place, the the, the Germans and the British were having naval maneuvers together. And right. the German was, a the, the Kaiser was a an, honor, an honorary admiral in the British Navy, like crazy stuff. And he <laughs> loved the Royal Navy. He was a massive yeah. fan of it.
0: Did, yeah. yeah. You've yeah. read uh, Neil Ferguson, I, I take it then.
1: Yeah, I have. But I, I <laughs> loved a lesser known historian called uh, John Charmley, who's who wrote a book called splendid isolation that that examined british foreign policy and it's it's got it's almost because there's such an an emphasis on how aggressive Germany was and how it wanted the first world war and made it happen. No one really looks at how aggressive in certain aspects Britain was in terms of trying to involve itself in the war to the point that you have like two or three men, one big example is Sir Edward Grey, who was the British Foreign Secretary from 1906 to 1916. And because he so fundamentally believed that the best way to ensure British security was to ally Britain with Russia, because he believed that, he thought that there had to be a kind of a boogeyman and, and Germany would fit that bill Right, he didn't want to, he didn't want Britain to go to war with Germany up until the last moment when he realized, oh, well, if we don't jump in, then Germany will overwhelm France. And but that that this is just now this is just one specific example, but there was no, yeah, and,
0: and, and if you know the the, the British and the, and the Germans were the the classic allies going back a long time, to the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, the Prussians were so the the natural allies were Germany and Britain against the natural enemies, which were Britain and France.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: it, it it strikes you as logical that they the Britain would have sided with Germany, and mm. it illogical that they would have sided with France against Germany. So Absolutely. we we actually kind of live in an in an alternate history.
1: We do, <laughs> where yeah. the, the
0: the least likely thing actually happened. Yeah. And so we're kind of living through the consequences of that. But it mm-hmm. would be interesting to see the more likely thing to have happened which would have been had you know let's say the the assassination took place and, and war was declared or or whatever what other you know stimulant you want uh Britain and and Germany team up against France and mm. just you know, destroy them i guess Yeah they,
1: big time and i think a, an interesting thing to look at as well the fact that up, the tra- Like, really, the tragic thing. I mean, I always thought of the First World War as an unnecessary tragedy once I knew enough about it to know that it was such a thing. But to me, what really struck me was how, on the downturn, arms buildups and, and aggressive actions were. Like, to, one big example is the, the Franco-German arms buildup. And in France it was in january 1914 there was a huge big scandal going on in the in the french government for a good while but the french president raymond poincaré he had he was born in in alsace and he had seen the germans march through it during the the franco-prussian war so he had this deep-seated hatred of germany which is understandable because his homeland got annexed essentially but yeah. He had always pushed for an increase in the French army bills to keep up with Germany to the point, and now he'd done this so aggressively. Now they were a bit, literally scraping the barrel of French manpower, but as a result, they were only very, very slightly behind what the Germans could field. And mm-hmm. the Germans, knowing this, because they did know this, and knowing that even if they maintained what they were doing and that, even if they stayed ahead of France they would still have to contend with Russia. So you had these two, basically these two rivals, they were reaching the end of how far they could build up their arms before something had to give. And I don't mean war by that. I mean, they had to pull it back. And mm-hmm. a, a reason why I think they could pull it back is because these moves were becoming to, to increase the French army. These moves were becoming increasingly criticized by the socialist, yeah. uh, the socialist party, which was led by Jean wares who, actually was assassinated after <sighs> uh, 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 when the war started to break out because he said, "Oh no, we can't go to war with our with our German socialist brethren kind of thing and right. he was killed by by a French nationalist who said, "No, we have to attack the German enemy, but people often forget that if the assassination hadn't happened, you were pretty much guaranteed a French governmental change by the autumn of nineteen fourteen which would have definitely rolled back or at least like significantly stunted the French increases in the army so that could have led to a detente as well and there was many elements within the German army and German government that believed that there was just no point in keeping going in this direction because they couldn't beat combination it was just too big too strong right so on that note i think it's i think it's good to before we before we get too carried away because this episode's only gone over an hour already so I'd just like to say a big thanks very much to you, Jordan, for joining me on this grand speculating journey.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, this, this is fascinating. I haven't done one of these in a, in a very long time. And, you know, we've known each other since inception. I can't remember when we started years ago. Um, mm. But, you know, we've always sort of been on each other's radars. And so it's nice to sort of team up once in a while to, to do these types of things. It is, yeah.
1: especially with the with the fifth birthday. I felt... It was important to get the people who had really been there, uh, been a big part of when diplomacy fails, as life yeah. and, and story. So it, it was really nice to have you on, and really nice to talk to you again. And before we before we go, is there any plugs you'd like to throw out there, to our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> well, sure,
0: yeah. Um, come check out uh, my podcast, The Twilight Histories. Uh, it's a science fiction, you know, alternate history, time travel adventure podcast. Uh, and if you enjoy it, you know, go through all the shows, and if you enjoy it, maybe come and uh, become a member. And there's lots of shows in the membership area. I'm working on a book right now, and it's set in one of our uh, – I, I polled members and polled the, the audience and just asked, you know, which is your favorite world? And it mm-hmm. turns out the the one that sort of everyone comes back to is this, this Roman industrial world that, that was, I created right at the very beginning. And it's, oh, yeah. it's an industrialized Roman empire that uh, takes place hundreds of years after Marcus Aurelius continued his expansion and, and actually put in someone that was uh, capable to follow him. And so, wow. yeah, Rome industrializes, it expands, it takes over huge swaths of the world, um, and so the the book's going to take a journey that, that stretches all over these different uh, uh, parts of the empire. There's going to be lots of travel throughout it and, and adventures and yeah, so it's I've, I've started doing that for members, and and I hope you'll join us for the, the ride.
1: Okay, well, thank you for joining me for this ride, and I'm sure my listeners would love to check you out. <laughs> Thanks very Great. much for joining me, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank it. you. Thank you. Cool. Bye for now. All righty, you made it out the other end. How about that? I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed looking into different eras of history from a different point of view and those alternative realities, I mean, most of them are kind of, I suppose you could say fairly obscure because no one really knows much about them. I mean, obviously I've covered the last one there in more detail, but as far as, I mean, lots of those go, I feel like there's plenty of room to speculate further. So if you guys feel like there's any kind of appetite amongst yourselves for that, then by all means let me know. Let me know if you think that any of those topics could be done in more detail, and I'll certainly consider it. Let me know as well what you thought about this collaboration episode, and let Jordan Harbour know too, because he's a quality podcaster deserving of your time. Remember to check him out at twilighthistories.com. Alrighty guys, I'm out of here. Thanks very much for listening. I will see you all soon.